If you've been here at all recently, you know that we've been doing a series called The Unexpected Jesus, where we look at strange, unexpected things that Jesus does, and then try to figure out why he does them and what we can learn from them. Tonight, the passage we're going to be looking at is John 11. This is one of my favorite passages in the Gospels. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And the unexpected thing that Jesus does in this passage says a lot about what Jesus is like, and in turn, I think, a lot about what God is like. And I think what it reveals is really, really good news for us. Really good news. So the passage is hopefully going to be on the screen behind me. But I do really encourage you to follow along in a Bible if you can see it. <laughs> um, there are Bibles in the, underneath the seats in front of you if you don't, didn't bring one. Um, but uh, you can just follow along up there. But I'm going to kind of be referencing uh, moments from the story as I work through the message. And so um, since, uh, since we can't, you know, be scrolling through that all the time, that could be helpful to have it open in front of you. Um, Okay, so the story's a little long, so try to, try to just imagine yourself in the story with Jesus. Try to really focus and put yourself there. It's a really, really great story, um, but it, it, it requires our full attention. So, uh, John 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. What, Jesus? <laughs> that's always been kind of confusing to me. That's, that's one unexpected thing in this passage, but it's actually not we're gonna what we're going to focus on tonight. But anyway, uh, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to, Jerusalem, and, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, well, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard me, but I said, I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So that's a great story, isn't it? It's a powerful story. And there's a lot that we could talk about from what we just read. But we're focusing on the, the unexpected Jesus, right? So what's the unexpected thing that Jesus does here? The unexpected thing happens in verse 35. It's actually the tiniest verse in the whole Bible. Just two little words. Jesus wept. Now most of us probably think of Jesus as being a compassionate, loving person. So the idea that Jesus would weep over something or someone probably doesn't seem that out of character. Um, but in the context of the story, Jesus' weeping is definitely unexpected. And hopefully you caught the reason why when we read the story. But just in case you didn't, here's a quick review. So the story starts with Jesus being told that Lazarus is sick. And Jesus has a very confident, reassuring response, right? He says, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In other words, Lazarus is going to be fine. What's happening here is going to show how awesome God is and how powerful I am, so no worries. Then, after a couple of days have passed, Jesus says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. And now the disciples don't want Jesus to go to where Lazarus lives, because the last time he was there, people threatened to kill him. So they try to discourage him. They say, well, let him sleep. He'll get better. But then Jesus tells them very plainly that he's not talking about literal sleep. He's talking about death. Lazarus is dead, he says. Let's drop the polite euphemisms. He's not taking rest. The man is deceased. But it's time to go wake him up. So before Jesus leaves for Bethany, he knows that Lazarus is dead. And he leaves to go to Bethany in order to raise him from the dead. 
right? And then when he gets to Bethany, we find out that he does raise him from the dead. But before he actually raises Lazarus, he weeps. He cries. Why? He knows what he's going to do, right? He's been talking about it for a long time. Why doesn't he just roll up his sleeves, crack his knuckles, and say, no problem, I got this? Why the tears? And what can we learn from those tears? That's the big question for tonight. Now, I want to be honest and admit something, which is, hypothetically speaking, if uh, you go to the library of a seminary, and you pull a big pile of commentaries off the shelf, and you go back to your desk, and you open each one of those commentaries, and you read what they have to say about why Jesus weeps, you find more than one answer. And uh, hypothetically speaking, you might feel a little frustrated about that, especially if you're preaching on it the next day. But there's at least one thing that all the commentaries agree on. And that's that if we're going to understand why Jesus weeps, we need to look really closely at what happens in verse 33. It says, When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come, come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And what pretty much every commentary out there will tell you is that the translation deeply moved in spirit and troubled doesn't really capture what's going on in the original language. Because the word that gets translated as deeply moved was actually a word that used to refer to, ready for this? <laughs> aggressive snorting animals. <laughs> like an angry horse on a battle line about to rush on the enemy. So Jesus isn't just moved here, he's angry. He's ticked off. And it's that feeling of anger that leads to his weeping. So these aren't just sad tears. There's an anger in these tears, too. So why does Jesus cry these angry tears? Well, some people say, and some of the commentaries say, that what Jesus is really angry about is the mourner's lack of faith. So they say that Jesus gets upset because he sees Mary and the Jews weeping, and he thinks, oh, why don't these people get it? Don't they realize that I'm more powerful than death? Don't they realize that I can raise Lazarus in an instant? Where's their faith? And, and then he weeps angrily because of the people's faithlessness. So how do we feel about that interpretation? Sound good? <laughs> I'll be honest, even though it's a really popular view, I don't buy it. For one thing, we're not even sure if Jesus had told the mourners he planned on raising Lazarus from the dead. Right? He, he told the disciples he would, and he hinted at it to Martha earlier in the story. But we don't see him make that promise to any of the people weeping. So it seems strange that Jesus would be so deeply offended by their mourning, don't you think? And if the reason Jesus is so upset is because the mourners aren't expecting him to raise Lazarus, how do we even apply that to our lives today? You know, does that mean Jesus gets upset when we mourn the death of a loved one? Does it mean we should expect God to raise the dead right out of their graves a couple days after the funeral? And if we don't, it makes them upset? Yikes. Well, thankfully, I don't think that's what the story is saying at all. In fact, I believe it's saying the exact opposite. It's not saying that Jesus would get mad at us for crying at a funeral. It's saying that Jesus sheds tears with us. 
Jesus isn't ticked off at the mourners. Jesus is ticked off at death. Because Jesus hates death. He hates it. Death is not a part of God's original design for our lives. In Genesis, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from one particular tree in the garden. Why? Because in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And God didn't want them to die. That wasn't his design. But of course, they did eat from the tree, and through that sin, death entered the world. But death was never God's design. It was never his order. And so when Jesus sees Mary and the Jews weeping, he has this ferocity like a horse ready to charge on the battle line, right? Because in that moment, death is rearing its ugly face and he wants to take it down. Surrounded by grief and mourning, Jesus sees the effects of death and he is deeply moved, he's deeply upset, he's furious. And so he asks, where have you laid him? In other words, let me at him because I'm gonna show death who's in charge. And so they lead him to the tomb, and when Jesus sees it from a distance, he's overwhelmed with emotion, and his anger boils over into this burst of frustrated tears. Jesus wept. So Jesus weeps because he hates death. He weeps because he sees and feels the reality of death, and he knows how far it falls from God's design, and it breaks his heart. But I think there's even more to Jesus' tears than this. Now, what I'm about to say is a little bit speculative, so take it with a grain of salt. But try to imagine what it would be like to be Jesus in this situation. Someone you love has died, and you're watching as your friends are weeping over the loss of that person. And because of your love for your friend Lazarus and for these mourners, you're filled with this rage against death. And so you decide, enough is enough. But when you see Lazarus' tomb, it suddenly hits you. If I'm going to defeat death once and for all, I'm going to need to go into the tomb. If I'm going to reverse the curse that hangs over these people that I love, I'm going to need to die. I'm going to need to suffer the humiliation and pain of the cross. If this thing that I hate so much is going to be destroyed, I'm going to have to go through it myself. Can you imagine how overwhelming that would feel in that moment? I think it could be enough to bring the Son of God to tears. We know from the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that he didn't have a Zen-like attitude about his death. He wasn't indifferent about it. He said, God, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Jesus was fully human. He didn't want to die or suffer, just like we don't. But more than his desire to avoid his own death, he desired to free us from the curse of death. And thank God for that. So what does all this mean for us? What's it matter that Jesus hates death and weeps over it? Well, for one thing, it's really, really good news. Because we need a God who hates death, don't we? Because death is an enemy that hovers over every one of us. We're all in the same boat. And if that enemy has the final word, then life is fundamentally tragic. If death is the end, every person you know and love will eventually cease to exist. Every memory you make will eventually be lost. Every virtue you develop will eventually be erased, all the hard work that you do to cultivate your character, cultivate your life. All of it, gone. And that's tragic. You know, it bothers me when people act like death isn't tragic. 
I'm reminded of a quote I've seen in several places uh, over the last couple of years. It, it gets passed around on the internet and Facebook. Uh, it's by a guy named Aaron Freeman, and it's kind of long, so I'll only read part of it, but you'll get the gist of it. It says, you want a physicist to speak at your funeral. You want the physicist to talk to your grieving family about the conservation of energy so that they will understand that your energy has not died. You want the physicist to remind your sobbing mother about the first law of thermodynamics, that no energy gets created in the universe and none is destroyed. You want your mother to know that all your energy, every vibration, every BTU of heat, every wave of every particle that was her beloved child remains with her in this world. You want the physicist to tell your weeping father that amid energies of the cosmos, you gave as good as you got. And you'll want the physicist to explain to those who loved you that they need not have faith. Indeed, they should not have faith. Let them know that they can measure, that scientists have measured precisely the conservation of energy and found it accurate, verifiable, and consistent across space and time. You can hope your family will examine the evidence and satisfy themselves that the science is sound and that they'll be comforted to know your energy is still around. According to the law of the conservation of energy, not a bit of you is gone. You're just less orderly. Amen. What a bunch of garbage. <laughs> I'm sorry, but let's be honest here, okay? When we lose someone that we truly love, it's not comforting to hear that the physical stuff that made them up still exists in a different form. Because that physical stuff is not the person that we loved. We don't mourn the loss of energy or light or heat. We mourn the loss of a person, a conscious being who had the capacity to love and be loved. We mourn the loss of someone who had memories and feelings and hopes and dreams. Now, impersonal matter and energy doesn't love, doesn't laugh, doesn't cry, doesn't think. And if this kind of thing is comforting to us, I'm afraid that we either haven't really loved a person or we're just being dishonest with ourselves. We're just trying to feel better by being in denial. The Bible has a line that captures what Aaron Freeman is saying here. It's this. He sums, it sums it up very simply. From dust you came, and to dust you shall return. And in the Bible, that's not supposed to be comforting. It's what God says to Adam and Eve after they eat from the tree. It's part of a curse, which I think makes a lot more sense than trying to make it part of a comforting funeral message. The fact is, in order for life not to be fundamentally tragic, death cannot be the end. We have to have some kind of hope that this enemy that hover, hovers over each one of us will not have the final say. We have to have that. And that means we need a God who hates death. We need a God who witnesses death and gets deeply agitated, don't we? We need that. And in Jesus, we have one. Another reason Jesus' weeping matters is because it gives us freedom to mourn death. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus in just a few moments, and he also knew that he would eventually destroy death forever through the cross, but he still wept. And if Jesus wept, I think it's okay for us to weep too. Mourning over death isn't a sign of weak faith. It's entirely possible to believe fully that you're going to see your dead loved one again and still weep for the loss of that life. 
There's nothing wrong with that. The Apostle Paul says that we're not supposed to mourn like those who have no hope. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean we aren't supposed to mourn. And Jesus gives us the freedom to do that. So I'm thankful for this story because it's a powerful picture of the fact that Jesus hates death with a passion and he mourns with us in our grief. But even more than that, the story reminds us that Jesus will also have victory over the enemy of death. As he said to Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus hated death enough to die himself in order to destroy it. And because of that, whoever believes in him will never die. So let's put our hope in the God who hates death and trust that through him, we too can have victory over it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that when you came to earth in the form of a man to reveal to us who you really are. You showed us your hatred against death. We thank you, Lord, that you are God who comes to bring life and to bring life to the full. We thank you that in you we have a hope that surpasses anything we could have anywhere else. God, we thank you that you empathize with us in our suffering and in our tears. We thank you that you are a God who is not indifferent to human suffering or far away, but with us in the midst of it. We thank you, Lord, that you do not condemn our grief, but that you share it with us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you to have the victory. We thank you that through you, we have the victory. We give you all thanks and praise, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.